following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 5, 1 through 17. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophecies to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace be known to the king that we went to the providence of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timbers laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names, for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the, <laughs> the Chaldean, who destroyed the house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus took, king, took no, I'm sorry, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazzar, whom he had made governor. And he said to them, "Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of the God be rebuilt on its site." Then this Shazbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send his pleasure in this matter. This is the word of the Lord. You've, you've probably heard the old saying, um, 
There are two things you should never discuss. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Two things you should never discuss, religion and politics. And today we're doing both. (laughs) That's what we're doing. Um, Now, let me acknowledge this. I know many people, especially within the church setting, get uncomfortable when government gets brought up within the church. And and I think that reveals... um, a level of of ignorance as to how frequently the scriptures speak about the governing authorities, the civil authorities that God has put in place. And when we hear it, out of that, we we have this response that, that we get a little bit squirmish, we get a little bit skeptical when the church brings up government within the within the proceeds of a of a Sunday gathering. We jump to a conclusion, well, this, this must be one of those churches. Like, they clearly have a political slant that they're in bed with, and they're willing to do anything to put this agenda in the front of this. And you see this especially within election cycles. The church sort of gets inflamed. The, the emotional response of the culture causes the church to get inflamed and cater to one side or to the other. But let me assure you, we are not one of those churches that's aiming to advance a, an agenda of one party or the other. And you might even be sitting there thinking, well, this is a sermon that's coming because all of the events that are going on in Ukraine, therefore there has to be some sort of timely response to that from the pulpit. But let me tell you, the only reasons why these two topics are being breached today are this. Number one, we're in a church, so we're going to talk about religion. We're going to talk about Jesus. So that one's on you, okay? You should expect that when you walk through the doors. But the second reason why we're talking about government is because today it it seems as if it's God's providence, that we have been, for the last several months, being directed by the word of God as far as what our preaching calendar looks like, what the topics of each sermon is in relation to, because we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Ezra, and then later on in the year, we'll be going through Nehemiah, which are, are basically two pieces of the same story. And it just so happens that today's topic relates to God and government. Now, before you tune me out, because I think... Sometimes there's a tendency among Christians to say, well, politics isn't really that big of a deal. We just turn our brains off. Let, let, the, let the secular world, let the political world run its course and do its thing. We can kind of hunker down in our own Christian bubble. Before you do that and tune out or before you squirm yourself on out of that pew, hear me out. I'm not here to publicly endorse any candidate, any party, except for King Jesus. That is my only mission, is to show you a king that reigns supreme over the cosmos. And and in light of that reality, I'm here to invite you as Christians, as people who I hope are growing in a Christian worldview to help you think, to understand, and to act biblically in regards to God and government. Now, this is a topic that is becoming increasingly important as the political landscape in our country shifts. And I don't believe, as Christians, we have a luxury of sidestepping it. The whole hunker down and ignore it is not an option for faithful Christians. And I think there's just simply too much at stake for us to do such a thing. Now, as we look at Ezra chapter 5 today, we see this tension 
of how God-fearing people are to relate with the government, how we are to understand and to think about the civil magistrates that God and his authority and power have instituted and how we are to respond and react and live our lives in accordance to those things. And specifically what we see in Ezra chapter 5 is how are Christians to proceed in faithfulness to God and be subject to the civil powers. Now what's interesting about Ezra chapter 5 is in this scenario, the two are put in opposition to one another. God says to do one thing, the civil magistrates say to do another. And there's this tension. So as Christians, we have to think through this. How are we to be faithful to God when it seems to obey God means to disobey government, or to disobey government is to obey God? How do we do this? That, that's really the big question that I want to throw out, you, throw out at you this morning, and as we work through the text, I hope to answer this. Now, if you're just joining us, if you're new to Sacred City, We've been going through the books of Ezra, uh, through the books of Ezra, and we, like I said, through Nehemiah, in the sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. This is a great story of revival that's told in the Old Testament, where as we saw read in the passage, um, God had led his people away into Babylonian captivity due to their unfaithfulness. And they go into 50-ish, 50 to 70 years of exile, 500 miles away from their homeland, from their hometown, in this foreign pagan nation where they have all of these, these forces that are pulling them into a life that is basically to reject God rather than to live in faithfulness to God. And God in his grace does not leave his people in that place of judgment, but he stirs up within the hearts of the leaders of Babylon within the leaders of his people and among the saints who are in captivity to rebuild the temple of the God of heaven and earth. And so he brings the exiles home and they, as they come home, they start the work. They start laying the altar, offering sacrifices to God. Worship, right worship is being restored among the people of God. They start building a temple, the, the dwelling place for God, and, and as they're working out the implications, there's this need to rebuild the city walls. And as they do, the, do those things, they begin to face opposition from their pagan neighbors, the, the neighbors in Samaria who are very much opposed to this worship, this right worship of God. What happens is these adversaries write a letter to the king of Persia who is now ruling in Babylon to tattletale on them and try to get them, try to get the king to use his power to make them stop. Are you following me? Okay, and it works. They write a letter, and it works, and the king issues a decree that there must be a halt to the work. We saw this at the end of Ezra chapter 4. It says, the work on the house of God that was in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And when king, king Darius gives the cease and desist, here is a moment in time where the king's orders are in opposition to the orders that God has given his people to go back home and to rebuild. Now, what we were able to do last week was detour into the book of Haggai chapter 1, and this gives us a little bit of insight as to what was happening between Ezra chapter 4 and Ezra chapter 5. There was a bit of a time lapse that took place there, and what we saw was there was a mission drift. 
this, this moment in time where they experience the, the tension between the command of God and the command of the, the local rulers put them in opposition. They stopped obeying God. They obeyed the king and the rebuilding on God's house halted. And what they did in that time was they shifted from a God-centered view, a God-centered agenda to a self-centered agenda. And what God did in his grace was sent prophetic provocation to the prophet Haggai. And what we see in, in uh, chapter one or verse 1 of chapter 5 is Zechariah is another uh, prophetic provocateur. And the Jews hear God speak. The gods respond to God speaking in repentance, and they obey the voice of God. And just like in the beginning of Ezra, where God stirred up in the hearts of the people, God once again stirs up in the hearts of people. That's how Haggai finishes his, his, uh, his chapter one. If I can find it real quick for you here. It's a good thing I got these bookmarked. It said, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all of the remnant people. So God once again stirs up, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of the host, their God. And this is where we see Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, picking up. It says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. There is this mini revival that takes place. God speaks, God, God confronts his people in their self-centered tendencies, and they respond to God in repentance, and with repentance comes refreshing. There's this new vigor and zeal for giving themselves to the work that God has called them to in rebuilding the temple. And now they're backed by the support of the prophets. They're, they're there as that constant poke in the side of stay faithful, stay true, don't, uh, don't veer from God's ways. And so the building picks back up. And it's got even more zeal, even more gusto behind the cause that God has placed in front of them. Now, what has changed? What's changed in their circumstances, or at least in regards to this cease and desist letter that King Darius issued only months ago? Nothing. A lot of the situation is still the same. The mandate to stop the work is still in effect. The adversaries are still opposing the work of the Jews. Nothing has really backed off in those regards. The situation is much the same, but they've been faced with this new crossroads all over again. Do they obey King Darius, or do they obey the God of heaven and earth? It's not necessarily... It's a, simple, it's a simple choice, not an easy choice. I'll say it that way. It's a simple choice to side on God's side, to be compelled by the word of the God through the prophets and obey God, but with that means that you will face more opposition. It will increase, not decrease. 
And even as they count the cost of what it will take to obey God in the face of King Darius, they opt to obey. They choose to obey the God of heaven and earth. Now this civil disobedience that we see here among the Jews piques the interest of Governor Tadani. I'm going to call him Governor Tat. That sounds cooler. He's there ruling on behalf of King Darius across the river. He sees that the Jews are back at it, this, this rebuilding process thing that has been underway. It, it, it got halted, now it picked back up again. He's scratching his head. What changed? What happened? Did King Darius give some kind of order or what? And he steps into the land of Jerusalem and he begins asking questions. We see this in verse three and four. At the same time, Tadani, the governor of the providence beyond the river of Shesabar Bozani, and the associates came to them and spoke to, the, spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They asked also them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? They come with, he comes to interrogate the people of God. What, who gave you this authority to resume this build, building project? Who are you, Jews, to reject the king of Persia and his mandate? Now, this might seem threatening to them as they're chipping away at this building project. It says that, that they've got large stones and timbers that they're putting into the walls. It's, it's heavy labor, They've got a lot of labor going on, and in the midst of that, they've got this interrogation that's coming, this pressure from the outside that's questioning every single thing that they do. Who are you to do this? By whose authority are you to do this? And even while they're being interrogated, verses 5 and verses 8 of Ezra chapter 5 show us that they continued faithful in the building project. It says they did it diligently. They're working diligently, and their work prospers. Now, here's where we face the question. We see this transpire. We see this, this civil disobedience taking place. The question is, was this the right thing for them to do? Is it right for the Jews to disobey to ignore the mandate that comes from King Darius? Especially when we have passages in the New Testament like Romans 13, one through two, which said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Or in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every inhuman institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, it seems like at a plain reading of these texts, they would say, well, they just need to fall in line. They just need to, right, be subject to the governing authorities, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution? Shouldn't they just fall in, keep their head down? I try to kind of um, hum underneath the radar, try to be undetectable. Or, or is civil disobedience not only right but necessary when the government contradicts the word of God? 
See, this is where the dilemma lies. Who, who wins? Whose authority do we abide by? See, that's really the, the underlying question behind Governor Tatt's interactions with the Jews. By whose authority do you do this? Now, Romans 13, 1 tells us there's no authority except from God. That God contains all authority, and God is the one who appoints the authorities, whether it be civil authorities in governments, whether it be congregational authorities in, in the elders of the church, parental authority in the household. God is the one who delegates authority. He gives parents authority over their children. This is not something parents earn, but something God appoints to them. God gives authority over the husband, or the husband over the wife, of elders over the church, of bosses over employees, of the state over the people. God delegates his authority. And because it's God's authority that has been lent out, he determines what his authority should be used for. Now, this is, this is when we start to look skeptically at power and authority, when it gets misused and misappropriated, when it's used outside of the bounds of what God intends authority to be used for. God gives husbands authority to sanctify their wives with the washing of the word. God gives parents authority over their children to train and instruct them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. God gives teachers authority over the students in loco parentis, right, in the place of parents, to train and instruct children in education. Bosses are given authority so that they may accomplish the will of God. Elders are given authority so that they can lend themselves to the maturation of the church. You can go to scripture. I, I, could, I can proof text every single one of those things, but what about government? What is government for? Well, in, in, in both passages that I read in Romans 13 and in 1 Peter 2, it gives us insight to that, the purpose of government. Romans 13, 3, three through 4 says this. For rulers are not a terror to good, but, to, uh, excuse me, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, of he, uh, of, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, it's even more clear in 1 Peter chapter 2 where he says, the governors is sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. God says the reason why there is civil governors, civil authorities, is to punish evil and wickedness and to promote goodness. Now, things get a little bit complicated when we start defining what those terms mean. What is wicked, what is evil, and what is good. 
Now, thankfully, we have the Word of God, which defines those things for us. It, it reveals to us an objective standard that is set out by God, not by the opinion of man, not given this certain moment in time that tends to be short-sighted and, and, and lose any sort of regard for the, the progressive unfolding of history. God's Word dictates what is good and what is evil. And if, God, if the government properly defines good and evil based upon the word of God, then what they do is they live into this role that God has appointed them to be a servant of God, to be a minister of God. Now, this is why we have terminology, not only in the United States, but you go to the UK, uh, even in Canada, prime ministers, right? Ministers is a word that's associated, associated with servanthood, right? This divine appointment from God to serve in God's purposes. This is what government is intended to do. Government is intended to serve God by punishing wickedness and promoting goodness. And they do this by creating just laws that are driven by principles that are found within the Holy Scriptures, by ruling equitably. Right? That's why we have the, 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 the blindfolded uh, woman of justice, Lady Justice, with her scales and balances. She's blind. There's this equitable ruling. And to protect the nation from evil outside forces. This is what government is for. And actually, if you go back to the beginning of the United States, go way back before uh, the Declaration of Independence or before any of the, the uh, big institutional uh, um, documents were formed, there was a Mayflower Compact that was written on the Mayflower as the Puritans and some of the first pilgrims were coming across the ocean. They understood the role of government in relation to God and his word. So much so, they wrote this first thing. And the first article, the first section of this document that they wrote goes like this. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, and for his own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that do well and for the punishment of evildoers. Do you hear how clearly that statement is influenced by the word of God? By Romans 13, by 1 Peter chapter 2. It highlights that, that government is appointed by God for his own glory, for his purposes, and for the public good. And acknowledges the, the state having the power of the sword for defense and for the promotion of good. This was in the mind of those who formed the first attempt at United States government as they were coming over on the Mayflower. Now, if the government, if the civil rulers were to function like this, to, to really view their role and responsibility under the authority of God in all matters, in all times, in all, in all places, there would never be a need for Christian defiance. There would never be a need for Christian defiance. The authorities were to come under the lordship of God. They would rule just like Jesus, right? With, with goodness, equity, Beauty and truth. 
And therefore, it would be very easy to pay all that is owed to the ruling authorities as Romans 13 continues to, to acknowledge in verses 7 through the end of this passage. He says, pay, all, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In that scenario, in that setup, that would be easy for Christians to do. Because the state would be in submission to God and Christians in submission to Christ. Therefore, to disobey the state would be to disobey God. If the laws are just, it promotes what is good, condemns what is evil. Therefore, what Paul says in Romans 13, 4, wrath would await for those who disobey the civil authorities that are in relation to God's authority. Now, that's kind of idyllic. We know that that does not happen because we live in a world that is tainted by sin. Sin affects the hearts of individuals, and the more power one gets, and less understanding rightly where that power comes from and how that power is meant to be deployed, power has the tendency to corrupt Those who disregard God's supreme authority and his purpose for authority will wield it to their own selfish gain. They will become a law unto themselves. They will self-inflate and put themselves as ultimate. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. This is, not a, this is something that you can go back through the history books. You can go back through the Old Testament. You can go through the New Testament, and you can see how this cadence repeats itself over and over and over again. The leaders who gain power that is detached from God's authority or detached from God's purpose, their agenda then supersedes whatever God has set out before them. You see this with Pharaoh. Pharaoh had disregard. Literally, Moses showed up and said, the God of heaven and earth, the, the I am, says this, the God of the cosmos. And Pharaoh says, who's that again? I don't know him. He pushes God's authority aside. You see this with Nebuchadnezzar as he comes through Jerusalem and stomps the city walls and the temple. See this in the story of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar sets himself up as the God that is superior to the God of heaven and earth. You see this with Caesar in the New Testament. He makes himself a God in the eyes of his, his people, and we see this in even more recent history with 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 tyrants and wicked rulers like Hitler and Pol Pot and Kim Jong-un and Putin. And we see this in Ezra chapter 5, this time with King Darius. King Darius sets himself apart from God or against God by offering this mandate to stop the work that God has instituted. And what it does, it creates a, a, a fork in the road obey the civil authorities or obey God. And when the civil authorities directly oppose the word of God, when they are, are clearly out of line with what the scriptures teach, it is a simple choice for the Christians. Because God always does what is good, right, and perfect, it is wise to side with God. And there's bib plenty of biblical support for this, not only in Ezra, in this story that we see in Ezra chapter 5, but go back to, to, to the midwives to kill the babies upon delivery. 
They disobey Pharaoh. They obey God. You see this in Daniel when King Nebuchadnezzar says, nobody can pray to any other God besides me. What does Daniel do? Three times a day, he goes and he prays to the God of heaven and earth. Civil disobedience. And then in Acts chapter five, when the apostles are out in the city and they are preaching the gospel to society that has wandered away from God, the the lost sheep of God's flock, they are told to stop preaching the gospel. And they don't. They don't stop. There's civil disobedience. In Acts chapter five, verse 29, the apostle Peter retorts, the same guy that wrote 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, we must obey God rather than men. With the apostles, with godly men and women throughout time and space, have come to understand is that the authority of God always supersedes the authority of man. Always. There is one king who is ruling and reigning over the cosmos. And when Jesus gives his great commission in Matthew 28, verse 18 and 19, he starts out by saying, all authority, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. God the Father has given all authority to God the Son. Therefore, it is our Christian duty as Christians where we bear the name of Christ that we live in allegiance to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that rules over the cosmos. Paul talks about this in Colossians, that he is preeminent. He is above all. There is no ruler, authority, no no time, no kingdom, nothing in this age or any age to come that supersedes the authority of Jesus. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, when Christians know this, not, not just cognitively, but in our hearts where this is a matter of faith, this gets deep in our bones. And when we come to this crossroads of do we obey God or do we obey the civil government when the two are opposed, we know how to answer this rightly. The Jews know how to answer Governor Tad here. They say this. He asks, by whose authority do you do this? They say, by God's authority, by the creator of heaven and earth, by the God who made all things, by the God who sustains all things. And we see this right from the jump in verse one of Ezra chapter five. It acknowledges that it is the God of Israel who was over them. The God of Israel who is reigning high above any other authority, any other ruler. It is God who rules over them. And it echoes Psalm 22. It says, dominion is the Lord's. He rules over the nations. See, this is a doctrine that all Christians need to hold on tight to, that God is ultimate. And verses 11 through 17 of Ezra chapter 5 show four traits or four competencies that are downstream of understanding God's cosmic authority. Let me highlight these for you. When we understand God's cosmic authority, his, his true lordship over the cosmos, 
Here are some things that are produced. Number one, you know who you are. When you, when you understand that God is the supreme king, you come to understand your relationship to him. There's a little floaty. You know who you are. You know your identity. Now, we see this as soon as they respond to Governor Tatt's questions. Look at verse 11 of Ezra chapter 5. And this was their reply to us. What do they say? We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. They know their place. They know that they belong to God and are there to please God. Their life is, all of life is lived in relationship to the lordship of God. And God has proved himself to be a good king, a just king. Now this is helpful to understand what kind of king God is, how he rules, the nature of his disposition towards his subjects. It helps us a great deal. One, it helps us to gravitate toward him, that he always does what is good, right, and perfect. If God is for us, who can be against us? He has that kind of, he has that kind of devotion to his subjects, that he always governs for our good. Now, this also helps when it comes to the crossroads of who do we obey, civil government or God? By knowing God's authority, by knowing God's word, this helps us understand how to resist tyrants. This shows us when it's appropriate for civil disobedience. It shows us when it's appropriate to say, I cannot in good conscience do so because the word of God directs me in this way. Therefore, there's this protection of identity. I am God's servant. I am here to do the will of God. It's out of that place of identity that they then go on to understand, number two, their cause. See, if you understand God as the ultimate authority, you understand God as the one who gives identity and then gives purpose. The two are related to one another. God shows us our cause. He gives clarity to the mission. And we see this as we go on in verse 11. It says, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago. They know what they're there for. They know that they are there to rebuild the temple that God has sent them to rebuild. This is the mission of God as revealed to them, not by their own personal preference, not by what's convenient, not by what's comfortable, but by what the word of God directs his people to do. Now, I've said this before in this series. God is calling us to do something as his people. We are not just a holy huddle that stands by and just is waiting for Jesus to come down and beam us back up to heaven. We have work to do. Good work to do. To make disciples. The Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them. Teach them to obey. Go make disciples. And this, this starts with ourselves, taking this self-responsibility to give myself 
as a student of God's word, in devotion to God, to be his loyal subject, to know what the will of God is so that I may live appropriately. This means by by establishing godly households where we together acknowledge the supremacy of Jesus in all things, where we devote ourselves to this worthy king who's worthy of our devotion, of our worship, and all of our all. We do this by establishing and raising up healthy churches, godly men who lead the church, giving ourselves to the work of renewing the city, of building up the brotherhood, that that Christian love would be embodied among the congregation. See, this is the mission that we have received from God, and it is good for us to do so, and it is joyful work. Listen, it's hard work. It's going to be work that is opposed, but it's joyful work because our joy is attached to God's good, his purposes. This is worthwhile. This is God-appointed work. It is right for us to do this. We, when we see God as sovereign, as the ruler of the cosmos, we know who we are, we knew, know what we're supposed to do. But that also creates a, um, a disposition in us in the midst of adversity. This is the third thing that we see you are able to trust God in the future because he has proven himself faithful in the past. When you see God as supreme, as as sovereign, you can see that our future is secure because God has previously done everything good, right, and perfect to bring about his purposes. Now, this is what's going on here in verses 12 through 16. The Israelites, the Jews are there. They're they're recounting the history of their nation, at least the recent history of their nation. They're chronicling God's sovereignty throughout everything, even through the hardship, even through the times when God's people have been rebellious, even when they've been judged by wicked kings and kingdoms. They're showing that they know God is sovereign in all matters. And because of this, They have a trust in God. And no matter what they face, they can trust God because he does good all of the time. And it's from that place of trust we see number four that's downstream of all of this. They are able to make a humble appeal to the civil authorities to do what God has called them to do. To govern in light of the authority of God that the government's purposes would line up with God's purposes for them. We see this in verse 17 as, as King, or Governor Tat is giving a, a documentation of what their response is. They make this request to King Darius. Now listen to this. This isn't bombastic. This isn't flagrant. This isn't, this isn't a, uh, an arrogant blow of civil disobedience. There's humility in this appeal that they make. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus, the king, 
for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Do you see this? The, 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 the demeanor that they carry to the king, of whom which they're choosing to disobey, there is still honor, there's still respect, there's humility placed there, and in this humble request, they say, would you be so kind to search the archives? Would you see what the kings before you have done to bring us to this point? Can you see where God has spoken and stirred up in the hearts of men to bring about his purposes? They are not frazzled. They are not angsty. They are not reacting emotionally. There's no cry for anarchy. Their civil disobedience is tempered and winsome. Honor and dignity are displayed. Now, we live in reactive times where all that stuff is like a foreign language. The way that we're taught by the culture to respond is blow up. Let your, let your emotions dictate what's going on in life and your response to various things. But here God tempers his people. There's clarity of, of identity. There's a clarity of mission. There's a clarity of sovereignty. And because of those things, there's deep trust and humility to respond appropriately. When we rightly understand God's sovereignty in all of creation... These traits, identity, mission, trust, and humility, are produced within us. Now, we might continue in civil disobedience if the, if the time were to arise for such a cause. But God develops us and curates us in such a way. He refines his people in such a way that we can respond to overreaching government in a way that honors God. Now, the way that you grow in understanding God's sovereignty, the, the way that you really come to grips to see just how sovereign God is, is by gazing upon Christ and the gospel. It is God's sovereign act that before the foundations of the world, before humans had any desire or any purpose or any whatever, God had predestined his people to be led into salvation through Jesus Christ. God had a plan to bring the wayward back into conformity with his rule. The rebels of God would become the sons and daughters of God. And in the work of Christ, who went to the cross on our behalf, who paid the price for our rebellion, we would become sons and daughters. We would receive a new gospel identity, not as rebellion, not as rebels, not as prideful and haughty and anxious people, but as sons and daughters of the sovereign king, that we would become a new creation, a new people, a new humanity, not because of our good works, not because we earned it, but because Jesus accomplished this for us. Now, Jesus not only delivers us from the domain of, of sin and death and darkness and the grave, Jesus gives us an example of what this looked like. Jesus was scorned as a rebel. From the beginning, if you read the Gospel of Mark, which we'll be going into in 
I think in March, we begin the Gospel of Mark. No, we're already in it. I lied. We see that it was not long after Jesus began his ministry that the authorities hated him and were trying to put him to death. It started with the religious authorities. Then it moved to the civil authorities who had their ears bent to the religious leaders. Jesus was labeled as a rebel. He was opposed by wicked leaders every step of the way in his ministry. Yet Jesus always regarded God's supreme authority. Never once did Jesus obey the Father. And because of this, because Jesus knew that God was the one who contained all authority, he lived in light of that authority. Jesus knew who he was. In his baptism, the pronouncement of God the Father over him, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. In the midst of temptation, he knows that he was the Lamb of God that was sent to take away the sins of the world. Jesus knew who he was, and he knew his mission. His mission was to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. See, all of this is downstream of knowing God's sovereignty, of knowing God's ultimate rule through the cosmos. And Jesus, operating out of this, knowing who he was, knowing his mission, he trusted God as so far as to go into the pits of death, to the grave, trusting that God would resurrect him in his power that he would institute a new life, resurrection life. He would be the firstborn of the dead, and the church would follow. And by this, Jesus overthrows the wicked powers, the governors that are out of line with the will of God, those who are positioned, who are, who are appointed to serve as ministers of God in the civil realm that are defiant to those purposes. Jesus overthrows the wicked powers of sin, death, the, the cosmic spiritual powers that are now at work in the sons of disobedience as, as Ephesians chapter six speaks to. And all those who are humble, all those who look to Jesus, who did this perfectly and cry out to him in faith, will be saved. See, Jesus shows us what it looks like to follow God when it's opposed to the will of man. And Jesus accomplished so much for us. How could we, how could our allegiance be split to him? See, the more that we reckon with Jesus and how he operated as he was in the flesh, the more that we see he is the one that God the Father has given all authority in heaven and earth, the more we have godly steel put in our spine to abide by his word, to submit to his rule and his reign, and to obey him even when the cost is high. And you know what happens? You know what happens when we live like that? When we subject ourselves to the power of God, when we let the word of God uh, show us the way? We flourish like a tree planted by waters. We flourish, we prosper. See, our good is wrapped up in God's glory. And that's exactly what we see in Ezra chapter five. This is unbelievable. 
Now, back in Haggai chapter one, we saw this, the curse of inflation taking place. You eat, but you're never full. You drink, but it's never satisfying. You've got clothes, but you're always, you know, you're not warm enough. There, there's this, this concept of the curse of inflation. And here in Ezra chapter five, there is this reversal of inflation into prosperity. On the far side of faithfulness is blessing. This is what King, uh, or excuse me, the, the governor Tat uh, identifies. It's being built with huge stones. They're doing the work. The timber is being laid in the walls. The work goes on diligently. They're being faithful to God. And look, and it prospers in their hands. On the far side of faithfulness is blessing. The far side of faithfulness is blessing. Now, the ultimate assurance of our blessing is Christ. He did the most important work for us in saving us from our sins. And as we respond to the fact that he is the Savior, that he is the King of kings and Lord of all, we live our lives in allegiance to him. We see his power being used for our good, and that enables us to live faithfully to him our Savior and our King. So what happens when Christians face this dilemma between obeying God or obeying man? We obey God. We obey God. We find great comfort, find great confidence in this, knowing that Jesus is the one who rules and reigns over all things. Now this does not mean life gets easy. Though there will be prosperity, it does not necessarily mean an ease of life. This is going against the culture. This is going against the current in a lot of ways. But God is good, and he is faithful, and he rewards those who are faithful to him. Now, we come to the Lord's table today, and this meal is a reminder. This points forward. It's a foretaste of the banquet that is to come. The banquet, the inaugural banquet of the kingdom of heaven where the kingdom of God will be consummated once and for all. And when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, it's not just that, that it's all rainbows and daisies and stuff. What we're talking about is everything is now in proper relationship to the lordship of Jesus Christ. See, in rebellion, it's chaos. In allegiance to Jesus, there is flourishing. And this banquet is a smorgasbord of God's grace to us. It reminds us that there is a day coming when Jesus' rule and reign, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and all things will be renewed. This meal points forward to that. And until that day comes, until Jesus comes back and rends the skies and the cosmos as it ought to be, this meal gives us a real strength right now. This is a spiritual meal that puts steel in our spine. This is a meal that enables us to press on in obedience to God, even when it's hard to do. It's because the Spirit of God is dwelling among God's people. And he sustains us. This meal sustains us and enables us for a life of faithfulness. So Christian, come and eat. Come and eat with the joy that's set before you on the other side of this life that Jesus will once and for all rule and reign. And know that right now in the interim period, God supplies the strength that you need to be faithful, to build godly homes, to, to, to create a, 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 
a healthy and vibrant church and missional communities. This is work that is well worth the cost. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us, and we thank you ultimately for Jesus who, who became sin for us, who was crucified, who was judged because of the sins that we have committed, the rebellion that we have done, the cosmic treason that we are guilty of against you, O oh God, and you deemed it right and good to redeem us and bring us back. We thank you for the gospel that makes us sons and daughters of the Most High King. Help us to live out of that identity, and we ask, God, that you give us both a, a conviction of your lordship and authority and clarity on the mission. Produce in us in a deep trust that no matter what the circumstances call for, we might say, it is well with my soul. My king directs every step of my way. And that we would proceed with humility and earnestness to see the kingdom of heaven unfold right here before us in the quad cities and far beyond. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We love you, Lord. We are your servants. It's in your name we pray, amen.